As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello all, this is Eric Rivenus. So, before we begin, I do want to make a quick announcement. I will be giving tours next spring in the Twin Cities. Most notorious motor coach tours. One in St. Paul on Saturday, April 27th from 1 to 4 p.m. And the other in Minneapolis on Saturday, May 4th, also 1 to 4 p.m. These will be tours highlighting some of the most infamous murders and tragedies in Twin Cities history. Tickets are $25 each, and space is limited. You can email me at erivenous at yahoo.com. That's E-R-I-V-E-N-E-S. Or head over to mostnotorious.com for more details. Now let's move on to the show, which you'll notice pretty quickly has no short narrative at the beginning. Uh, for this week, uh, just because my interview ran far longer than expected. Anyway, hope you enjoy me getting interviewed this week about my book, Dirty Doc Ames and the Scandal That Shook Minneapolis. And off we go. This is Eric with Minnesota's Most Notorious, sitting here with my sister, Allison, at my other sister, Jen's house in beautiful, historic Stillwater. Uh, we're together for the holidays, and I thought this would be a, a fun opportunity for me to talk about my book that was published in April of this year called Dirty Doc Ames and the Scandal That Shook Minneapolis. Instead of just rambling on on my own, uh, I thought I would have my sister Allison, since she's read the book a couple of times, ask me some questions and we can turn the interview here on its head. Normally, I'm the one asking the questions. I think it'll be fun for me to, to actually answer them this time. So please excuse the, the sound. Um, this is a little bit of a different setup than we're normally used to. This is my remote setup which I haven't completely perfected yet. So anyway, uh, thanks, Allie, for agreeing to, to do this. Well, I didn't have much choice. I'm locked in this bedroom. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I can make jokes. You can edit all my jokes. <laughs> no, no, we don't have to edit it. Uh, no. to, get, to give everyone a better understanding, because we've got a house full of people here, we've been relegated to one of the upstairs bedrooms. We've got a, we've got a little space to do this today. Eric, I'm really excited to talk to you about this book. I've read it a number of times, and I've read your novels. Uh, so I, it's just so hard to believe that, you know, this whole story with Doc Ames actually happened. Um, and I'm really looking forward to 
asking you the questions that came up in my mind when I was reading this book. Yeah. Um, so you've essentially become an expert on this subject. Uh, and, you know, you've been talking about it for years. Where did you first come across this story? Yeah, it's a weird, weird subject to be an ex- expert on. Uh, I think I probably got lucky in a, in a way that, that nobody had ever written a book about this. And as I began doing my research and writing, I realized why. There wasn't a lot of information, so I really had to dig hard and come up with something that would allow me to create the, the narrative that I ultimately create with the book. But back when I ran the, uh, the old St. Paul Gangster Tours, the gist of that, that business in the mid-90s was a tour of gangster-era St. Paul. That's where most of the activity was taking place because it was a, a hangout for criminals a hiding spot for for gangsters. Minneapolis had its own share of criminality throughout the years, but it it it, it doesn't have quite the the 1920s and 30s gangster era atmosphere that uh, St. Paul did. So I had to dig a little bit harder when I put together a Minneapolis version of the St. Paul gangster tour. Uh, but one of the the things that I came across uh, pretty early on was a an article written by a, a muckraking journalist by the name of Lincoln Steffens, who wrote for a number of New York newspapers and magazines before he was finally hired by McClure's magazine to write a series of exposés on corruption in mostly Midwestern cities across America. And I came across this article, and it was called The Shame of Minneapolis. It was part of the Shame of the Cities series, and it is the most famous of this series, the Minneapolis edition, highly embarrassing to the city of Minneapolis. It exposed this larger-than-life criminal-slash-politician-slash-surgeon named Albert Alonzo Ames, better known as Doc Ames, to the country and just brought abject humiliation upon the state of Minnesota. And I wasn't sure because it, it seemed so sensational I mean, I guess it isn't a big surprise considering that this was the era of yellow journalism, but it seemed so extraordinary that that these events would happen in Minneapolis and Doc and his inner circle of cronies would ultimately be brought down in such a, a graphic and a important way. So I learned of the story through this article called The Shame of, Shame of Minneapolis and wrote it you know, 20 odd years ago. And that was, that was the first time I heard about it. And there's just something so fascinating about the Victorian era to me um, that I've thought about it over the years. And I've done research here and there for a while without really knowing what I would, would be doing with the information I was gathering. And then finally, if a few years ago, I decided I would write a couple of novels based on these, these characters from this the, these real-life events that happened in Minneapolis, and they're, they're called uh, The Big Mitt and Ill Fame, a sequel, which was great fun. But after writing these novels, I had even more information, and I thought, I mean, I wasn't sure whether I was going to be writing this as a companion piece, but um, I contacted the Minnesota Historical Society Press, and um, they were eager to publish this book, thinking it it uh, was a very important and significant moment in, in uh, Minnesota history and politics. And we can talk about the reason why it was in just a little bit. But that's, that's kind of the catalyst of all of this. It's interesting being from Minnesota and never having heard of this story before and it being so monumental. I think it's really great that you're, you know, digging it up and, uh, because, you know, history repeats itself and we don't want to, uh, you know, it's, it's good to learn from the past. So we, I look at this story and I think, how could this possibly happen? You know, how could, how could a man this crooked be elected mayor of Minneapolis? So I think it's important to understand where he came from sure. and what his appeal was to the voters um, because he did have an appeal uh, being, you know, a doctor and a veteran and, you know, very giving to the poor. He could, he could be generous at times. So can you talk about how he got to become mayor of Minneapolis? Absolutely. So, so Doc Ames was a really complex 
strange individual. Um, he had two sides to him. There were there were two doc games. There was the doctor, the genial doctor, as Lincoln Steffens called him in the uh, Shame of Minneapolis, always willing to offer a hand to his fellow Minneapolitans. He was known as a man who would not turn down a patient, even if they didn't have any money. So he was very compassionate. Um, he, would, he would go into saloons, uh, which he frequented regularly, and would buy drinks for all the patrons there. You know, out of his own pocket, buy rounds. He was, he was beloved by many, many people in Minneapolis. And part of this, I'm sure, was compassion. But he was very calculated in how he did this as well. He would later state that for every patient he treated, it would be a vote for at least two years. So it was kind of a this, this political machine almost that he operated where he built up this following of disenfranchised, down-and-outers, people who would not normally be interested in politics, but loved Doc Ames for his generosity. He built up this following of loyalists, of supporters that would follow him uh, from one political party to the next. They didn't really care what political party he belonged to. They just loved him as a person. And this paid off for him in many ways. He was a four-time mayor of Minneapolis starting in, eight, in 1876 as a fresh fresh-faced young man. He ran as an alderman, as a Republican, and decided he would run for mayor a year later in 1876. But the Republican Party would not give him the endorsement, and the Democratic Party was more than willing to. So he switched parties uh, at an early age and became a Democrat. And when we talk about Republican, the Republican Party, the Democratic Party for Doc Ames, he embraced whatever party he was in at any given time. But in hindsight, kind of looking at his political career in, in general as a whole, he was the ultimate flip-flopper. He was a political opportunist. He just swayed with the breeze. Um, it was more important to him to be in office. And he thought very highly of himself. He thought that he was very special and very important. And holding a political office like mayor of Minneapolis was a way to feed his ego, pretty much. And he had a really, really large ego, um, almost cartoonish in many ways. So there was the, the doctor side to Doc and also the politician side. And for the most part, they ran parallel to each other. But as I mentioned, they would cross over in very calculated ways. But even when he was mayor of Minneapolis, and he served in other political offices as well, he always ran his clinic. He always ran his clinic full-time. So a very, very busy, busy man, and always looking to, to climb higher. Incredibly ambitious. But the real question is, was, was he ambitious because he wanted to improve the lot of the city that he represented, uh, or was he ambitious because he really, really enjoyed the power that came with, with being a politician? So you mentioned Doc Ames' ego. Uh, in the book, you talked about his obsession with like pomp and circumstance for you know military parades uh, in his own honor. Um, can you describe um, you know what his relationship with military and veterans? Um, was? Yeah. Looking back at Doc Ames's career in general, it's plagued by scandal and by his catering to special interest groups throughout the years, most notably gambling houses, saloons, the liquor industry, and brothels. Those were his real people. Those were the people that he, he protected and also exploited as we'll, we'll learn here in just a bit. Um, but yeah, he, he was a friend of the veteran. And a lot of this stemmed from his early days when he joined the 9th Infantry Regiment in uh, 1862 to fight in what would later be known as the Dakota War. He was born in Garden Prairie, Illinois, by the way, but, but came to Minneapolis with his family um, as, a, as a young boy. And basically, 
his father, Dr. Alfred Elisha Ames, one of the first doctors to settle in the area. They were one of the, the founding families of, of what is now known as the city of Minneapolis. In fact, the first permanent house was built basically right where the U.S. Bank Vikings, Minnesota Vikings Stadium sits now, right where that big great, that big Viking ship is, is, is where their original house was back when Minneapolis consisted of about 12 families. Uh, but anyway, um, again, the so I guess my point being that the Ames family was a very, very important family early on. So Albert Alonzo Ames, as a young man, followed in his father's footsteps and started studying to be a doctor. The war came. Um, he had just graduated from Rush Medical School in Chicago, joined the Army as a private, uh, got transferred to another regiment, to the 7th, and he became an assistant surgeon and then a surgeon. And after the Dakota War was over, those regiments were sent off to uh, fight in the Civil War. So it was a meteoric rise for him throughout those two years, two to three years or so, that he served in the, in the 1860s. And he came out with a great love for the, the military, and he held that great love for the military for the rest of his life. One of the things he ultimately ended up doing, he, he would run for governor at one point in, in Minnesota and, and be very severely disappointed. He would lose by like half a percentage point after a great scandal happened. And one of his, his big issues running as, as governor of Minnesota that year was to start a, an old soldier's home for veterans of the Civil War and whatever wars would ultimately follow. And even though he lost his, the, the governorship running as a Democrat, the Republican governor took up that issue and ultimately got the old soldier's home built. And it still stands today. And he actually acted as the, the first um, administrator. So he did have great, a great love for, for the military, yes. So you talked about how he served four terms, but they weren't consecutive terms, right? And he had changed parties in between, and he had quite a few losses um, in between his third and his fourth term. He had run for various things. Can you talk about um, kind of like his up and the ups and downs of his political career? Sure, yeah. He, he would ultimately lose more elections than he would win. But yeah, there was a little bit of a back and forth in the 1870s and 1880s. Um, it was kind of a pend pendulum thing um, where he came in as mayor in 1876. Very early on, even as a young man, there were reports in newspapers that he was visiting brothels. And by the way, he had a wife and he had children at this point. He was spending a lot of money in gambling, gambling dens. He was drinking a lot. And again, as, I, as I've already mentioned, he, he got into bed with the liquor industry really, really early on. And it might have been just because these were his friends. He had, he had friends in low places. Um, and these were the people, these were his people to an extent. A lot of the immigrants coming into Minnesota during this time, German, Scandinavian immigrants, German especially, I mean, they have a beer culture, right? I mean, beer lager houses. Um, very, very important to them. And there were all sorts of puritanical laws in place uh, during this time to prevent people from from drinking at the times they wanted to drink. <laughs> so saloons were, were not open as long as Germans wanted them to, to be open. And they were closed on Sundays. And for somebody who worked six days a week and their only day of the week to go to go have a beer you know, if it's on a Sunday and they can't have a beer, obviously they're not going to be happy with this. And there were ministers every Sunday, uh, once Doc Ames became mayor, who would rant and rave about the evils of these vice districts in Minneapolis. And early on, he made enemies of ministers and businessmen and those members of Minneapolis society, supposedly the upright moral element of society. But Doc Ames was a big talker and he could dish it out just like he could receive it. Um, at one point when responding to a sermon, uh, because the newspapers would eagerly print these sermons, you know, they would send reporters to listen to these sermons on Sunday mornings and report exactly what they were saying. So one day this, this minister 
went on this this savage tear of Doc and talked about you know how all these these gambling dens were were bringing bringing in the worst elements into Minneapolis and Doc was like well you know as soon as you stop having charity events you know to raise to raise money for your own your own benefit you know as soon as you stop that then you can lecture me about gambling but uh, Doc made the economic argument that these saloons and brothels and gambling houses were very, very important to the the interests, the financial interests of the city. And these kinds of places were places that out-of-town visitors, instead of just sailing by on the rails, would come to Minneapolis to frequent. You know, lumberjacks and farmers from out of, out of state would spend their money here and grow the economy, the local economy. So that was the always the argument that he that he went for. But it, it, again, it would it would swing back and forth. He would go too far, and voters would get scared, and then they would vote someone like George Pillsbury of the Pillsbury uh, flour milling business. And, and again, Minneapolis was considered the mill city at this time. So the, the flour mill interests were, were incredibly important and powerful in Minneapolis. And one of their, their own would become mayor after Doc, and he would go the opposite direction. He would create specific districts in Minneapolis that, that were very, very limited as to where people could drink and could gamble. And then everyone would complain that that these districts were too small, and then Doc would get elected again and would again try to open these areas up. And it was a really, really interesting back and forth for a while. But by the time Doc became mayor for his third time in 1886, he was a really, really popular figure in Minnesota politics. Some said he was the most popular politician in the entire state. He had, again, amassed this incredible following. And not just with local Minneapolis followers, but with followers all over the state. People were having a difficult time economically, and they saw him as their Pied Piper, in a sense. And he was a he was a populist. He talked really, really big and bold, and people were were desperate for change and willing to to follow this doctor despite his immorality and his personal imperfections and there were lots and lots of personal imperfections for doc games as humans we're naturally driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed when i was looking to hire someone it was so slow and overwhelming I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Eric, you mentioned earlier that Doc was an opportunist, and it seems like it was never more clear uh, than in his fourth run for mayor. Uh you said in your book he took advantage of an open primary law that had just changed uh, in Minnesota um, so that he could inf- 
change parties and infiltrate the Republican Party's primary. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's a great question, but I, I want to set it up here. So during this run for governor in 1886, he was on the cusp of getting elected. And as you've, you've already mentioned yourself, he was a great believer in military pomp and circumstance. One of the things that scared a lot of people in Minneapolis was the fact that he had turned his police force almost into a military force. Well, on the eve of the election in 1886, Doc Ames was predicted to win by quite a large margin. And the Democratic Party was incredibly excited about this because this would have been the first time in a long time that a Democrat would would have been governor. Well, on the eve of the election, the, the Democratic Party in Minneapolis had had a big parade, a torchlight parade. This was tradition back then that each party would hold a giant parade where they would walk through the streets of Minneapolis with torches and shout their slogans. They had wagons with signs, and it was always a very, very festive tradition. And the Democratic Party had had a, had a big one a couple of nights before. The Republican Party wanted to outdo theirs, and so they amassed a huge group of people with their torches walking through the streets of Minneapolis Everything pretty peaceful for a while, expressing their their free speech. Doc Ames, who, while running for governor, was still mayor of Minneapolis, he decided he didn't like this very much. And the Democratic stronghold during this time was along Washington Avenue uh, near Nicollet. And as they marched down Nicollet and turned onto Washington, all of a sudden all these supporters of Doc Ames stumbled and poured out of the, the saloons and just started attacking the Republican parade and started beating Republicans. I shouldn't laugh. It's not funny. Um, no one got killed, fortunately. But it's it's kind of an interesting image to, to imagine, these upright Republicans kind of marching festively down the street, and then all of a sudden they turn onto Washington, and this drunken mob of Ames loyalists just start attacking them. And the police are on the scene, but... They stand by. They don't do anything. And there are even reports that the, when the police do jump into the to the fray, into the melee, they start joining <laughs> the Democrats in beating up the Republicans. So they had no protection uh, that night. And someone in one of the newspapers even reported seeing Doc on his horse kind of watching what was going on from a distance. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, that's what one paper reported. But anyway... This turned out to be a massive mistake for the Ames campaign, and news spread like wildfire across the state about what had happened. And, of course, there was proof. These Republicans showed up uh, the day after to the polls all battered and bruised, and Doc Ames lost the election by like half a percentage point. And that had been kind of the peak of his political career. Um, he, I mean, he was in his 40s at this point, incredibly powerful. And then suddenly this, along with some horrible family drama that maybe we won't have time to get into today, but it's all in the book, this personal soap opera that happened between he and his separated wife and his children that got drawn out in the newspaper for at least two years, all these terrible things he did to his family. This really poisoned kind of the city against him, the state and the city against him, and he became kind of a political pariah through the 1890s. He would continue to run uh, for office, but he wouldn't get elected. So by 1900, everybody thought he was a washed-up hack. Nobody took him seriously. He couldn't get a Democratic endorsement after this, after this fiasco, you know, in running for governor. He tried becoming a uh, an independent, that didn't work. But he, again, as an opportunist, he saw there were a couple of very important things that happened in 1900. First of all, William McKinley was president of the United States. He was a very re- popular Republican president, and he was running for re-election in 1900. He was a sure thing to win the re-election, and so Doc knew that becoming a Republican would be good for that reason. He could coast in possibly on McKinley's coattails if he could get the endorsement. That would be the hard part, win the primary. And the other thing was the primary itself. There was a law that had been passed by the legislature the year before, which was a law designed to prevent people like Doc Ames 
from ever becoming an elected official again. This was the progressive era, by the way, at this time. So a lot of these old Tammany Hall style, they would call them Mossback, ringster politicians, these old school politicians that would really control politics on a local ward level. These politicians, people saw them as having this chokehold on on municipal politics and not allowing new ideas to come in and uncorrupt candidates to compete in these elections. I mean, Doc Ames was like a miniature version of Boss Tweed, you know, in Tammany Hall in, in New York. It was the same kind of thing. And Doc wasn't the only one that was that was controlling these these local elections in the Twin Cities, but he was considered kind of a representative of this of this old school style of politics. So, and again, this progressive movement was coming about where the citizens of Minneapolis and other cities across the the country wanted to take greater control of their their local politics, and and so the legislature passed what was in essence an open primary law. So the idea was that. You didn't have to go through the local ward bosses to get a nomination as a Republican or a Democratic candidate. The primaries would be open. Uh, anyone from any party could vote for for whatever candidate they wanted. So this idea of opening up democracy for all was well-intended, but it backfired because Doc Ames had built up this core group of these followers. They were called the Tin Pail Brigade because... They were working class folks who couldn't afford to buy lunch at lunch wagons or restaurants. They brought their tin pails to work every day. So that was what they were called. He actually had a name for his followers. This tin pail brigade that had followed him over the the past 25 years, again, were more interested in Doc Ames than any political party. So when he became, uh, when he declared himself a Republican, at first, local Republicans thought, okay, this is great, you know, no problem. He's seen the light or whatever. He can be a Republican. And then just weeks after he declared he was he was now officially a Republican, he put his, his hat in the ring as the Republican candidate for mayor of Minneapolis for his fourth term. And, and at, at this point, Republicans, Minneapolis Republicans started to panic. So they put up a, a big fight during the primary. They had a, a candidate who was well-received for the most part, but was not as interesting to listen to as Doc. Doc's was a, a wonderful orator, um, all fire and brimstone. And, I mean, he, he had this incredible charisma, which just hypnotized, especially uh, people who didn't know much about politics, um, like his followers and, and others. And so these followers came with him a lot of them Democrats, a lot of them without any political affiliation, but patience of his, and crossed over and voted him in to the Republican primary, and he became the Republican candidate for mayor. Um, and then not long after, during this time, there were only a handful of weeks between the primary and the general election, and they they pushed him into the mayor's seat in the general election as well. And suddenly here was this, again, this pariah, this man that nobody thought could ever win again, who most of the newspapers, except for the Minneapolis Tribune, absolutely despised. And he was now um, a fourth-term mayor of Minneapolis, and the entire city kind of took a collective gasp and kind of readied themselves for what was about to happen. Wow, that's amazing. So uh, it seems like, you know, he, you mentioned in the past he had run the police, like his own private military, and, you know, he had dealings with brothels and things, but it seems like it was even more heightened in his fourth term. Can you talk about what he did with the police force and his relationship with the ne'er-do-wells and how, how that changed with that fourth term? Sure. Well, yeah, by his fourth term, he was already 59 years old, which I guess was old for a politician in 1901. Obviously, things are a lot different now, but he was nicknamed the old man at age 59. And at the uh, advent of this fourth term, he was incredibly motivated by, by money. Knowing that he might not get elected again for mayor, this might be his last hurrah. 
he, he started to surround himself with people who were of, of like mind as him. It was very, very important for Doc Ames not to fill the positions he had the responsibility of filling with people that were competent. Competency wasn't important to him. It was loyalty that was more important than anything else. People that were loyal to him were people that would get positions in the police force and on his administrative staff. And by the way, his administration very early on, they had an internal motto, believe it or not, which was get the coin. So, so the whole purpose of this fourth term for Doc and for the people he surrounded himself with was to make as much money as they possibly could. And these mayoral terms in 1901 were two-year terms. So he had two years, hopefully more. He, he always had grander ambitions. He always was the optimist as far as his political career. Um, that's part of the reason why he survived as long as he did. I don't think a lot of people, if they had gone through what he had gone through, especially in the 1880s and early 1890s, where he was just crucified in the newspapers, would ever have the the gumption or the moxie to pull himself together again and make a fourth run. So to give him credit where credit is due, his ambition was just extraordinary. But he was also kind of limited in, in what he controlled, the mayor, in 1901. I mean, there was still a city council that controlled appropriations. So he had to answer to a city council, but he had controlled the police department, and that is really all he needed. And he had control of who he would hire as his, as his private secretary, et cetera, et cetera. So he started very early on, like almost as soon as he, he won, he made an announcement in the newspapers that there would be no Democratic policemen. All the policemen would be Republican policemen. And he basically he fired half of the police force and replaced many of them with, with criminals, with brothers of saloon keepers that he was friends with. People with no experience walking a beat were made patrolmen. And um, instead of hiring somebody who had a lot of experience running a, a police force as his chief of police, um, because again, he was the mayor, he needed a chief of police as well. And there were plenty of competent candidates that, that could have done that. He decided to hire his, his brother, Fred Ames, um, 16 years his junior as the chief of police, and that would turn out to be a gigantic mistake. Fred Ames, two years earlier, had been um, the colonel of the 13th Minnesota, the famed regiment, a volunteer regiment that had fought during the Spanish-American War. Some of his fellow officers accused him of cowardism. So he came back to Minnesota under kind of a cloud of suspicion by many. So it was kind of a surprise when... Doc appointed his brother Fred as the chief of police. So that was one real strange appointment right off the bat. Doc also appointed as a special officer, a special police officer, his assistant in his medical office, a man named Erwin Gardner, um, who was a 24-year-old Hamlin medical student. And Gardner's responsibility would be to go to some of the fringe brothels that were not part of the official red light districts and shake down the madams and tell them that if they wanted protection from the police, they had to pay for it. So he had his medical assistant named Gardner as a special officer. Um, as a captain of police, he chose this man named John Fichette, who was better known as Coffee John Fichette, who was this crazy, larger-than-life character who had this incredible temper problem. He owned a restaurant in downtown Minneapolis called Coffee John's Oyster Grotto, and he and his wife would constantly cheat customers out of, out of money. Um, when one customer didn't pay, he locked the door and wouldn't let him out. Um, he um, smashed a sugar bowl over another customer's uh, head when that customer complained about being served um, perch instead of bass or something like that. So Coffee John was this crazy character with no police experience. This just this belligerent bully was picked to be a captain of police. And it was his job to sell positions on the police force and then hand the money over to Doc. So there was Coffee John Fachette. He picked as his, as his chief of detectives just this brutal, horrible 
police detective named Nathaniel Norm King, who was just a perpetual drunkard and was known for just beating people in saloons like after hours to a pulp for no reason. Um, he was written up in the newspapers constantly for just being this, this terrible, abusive police officer. Um, at one point in the 1890s, I believe, he had shoved the point of a pistol right up a guy's eye socket and twisted it right out. So this, this would be the chief of detectives under Doc Ames. <laughs> so he really kind of surrounded himself with this, this cast of bruisers and incompetence. Um, again, with the idea that these were the men that would support him and would not turn on him, no matter what the situation. Wow, that's an amazing cast of characters. It's hard to believe they were actually real. It's so fun to read about them. Uh, I was wondering, so you mentioned, you know, Erwin Gardner going around shaking down the madams. In what other ways did... The, were the police used to uh, line Doc's pockets? Yeah, Doc, Doc Ames was making money multiple ways. And again, it's really, really interesting because in 1901, prostitution is illegal, but it's considered a necessary evil, and it's still allowed. There are three red light districts in Minneapolis during this time, and the madams in these red light districts were well known by, by city officials. And um, because, they, because they were technically illegal, these brothels, um, they couldn't actually give these women licenses. So instead of licenses, they would fine them instead, but they would be regular monthly fines. So every month, these women would march down to City Hall. They would pay a $100 fine each per month just for the privilege of continuing without persecution. But these were, the, again, these were madams that were all known by city officials and contained within these red light districts. These weren't all of the, the brothels in Minneapolis. There were fringe brothels as well. Brothels on the outskirts of town, usually smaller, usually underground. And these were the brothels that Doc Ames decided to prey on. So one of the first things he did is he made an announcement saying these madams of these, these red light district brothels were being taxed too heavily, these, these poor young women. They're just trying to run a business and earn a living. And here we are taking $100 a month from them. So he said he would cut that in half, $50 a month. It will be all that we will collect from these madams. And the city council is horrified, of course, because they need this money. This money is part of their budget. <laughs> and a lot of this money goes to pay for the police, police force. So he's doing this publicly, but then privately, he's sending Erwin Gardner and a couple of, of uh, policemen, a couple of goons alongside him to go to the fringe brothel madams and shook, shook them down for money. So that was, that was one way that he was making cash. And then he had a, a local gangster named Fred Briggs. He invited Fred Briggs in, and Briggs went to all of the Minneapolis saloons and installed slot machines into their back rooms. And slot machines were illegal and put them in there whether these saloon owners wanted them there or not. And according to Lincoln Steffens later on, um, Doc Ames would make tens of thousands of dollars in that first year just based on profit from these slot machines alone. So that was another way he was making money. One of the most interesting ways that he, he made money was by setting up illegal games of chance. He didn't set them up personally. He had Erwin Gardner, his medical assistant, invite and, and Norm King invite professional bunco artists, professional gamblers from across the country into Minneapolis. And with the police department, set up card rooms in downtown Minneapolis with the sole intent to fleece as many out-of-towners visiting Minneapolis as possible. So one of the, the rules that Gardner gave these, these bunco artists coming in was that they could not take money from anyone living within Hennepin County. But anyone else coming to Minneapolis to visit, they were free to cheat as much money as they possibly could from, and then they would get a cut of that money, and part of it would be paid, the, the bulk of that 
cut would be paid to to Doc Ames, directly to Doc Ames. So that's what happened. Two of these characters, um, one named Billy Edwards and the other named Cheerful Char- Charlie Howard, were called in from Seattle. And they were assigned a police officer named um, Chris Norbeck, who was this big, stupid Norwegian patrolman. Um, he was a gigantic drunkard, like a lot of these guys were. He was part of this whole operation as well. Basically, what these guys would do, they all had different positions, These this group of professional uh, hustlers. One would, would be called a, a steerer, and the steerer would go down to the to the train station, which was the, the Milwaukee Depot. It's one of the, the few buildings from this era along Washington Avenue that still stands. But these card rooms would be set up, you know, a block or two blocks away, not very far from the train station. And this was on purpose. They would go to the train station, find some sucker. They would call them rubes or suckers. Find some sucker that looked like he didn't know the town very well and basically throw his arm around him and say, you know, you look like you, you know, you could use a friend. I, I would be happy to take you around town tonight, I'll show you the, the best restaurants. Maybe we can go to a vaudeville show. And after that was all finished and they were having a grand old time and bonding, then he would say towards the end of their evening, you know, would you like to play a, you know, an informal hand of cards? I've got some friends who are meeting in this room and we can go up there and just play some friendly cards for a little bit of money. So this Rube now trusting this steerer and not realizing that he was walking into this giant trap would follow the steerer into this card room and it would just basically be a room above a, a business with, with uh, some chips and a table and some chairs and not much else. And of course, the dealer would be in on it. Everybody up there would be in on the con, except for the the rube coming in. And they would deal him what was called a big mitt, a big mitt hand. The name of my first novel is called The Big Mitt. It has nothing to do with baseball. It's the the hand that would be that would be dealt that would ultimately cheat this rube out of his money. And I explained this all in full detail in the book exactly how this would happen. And if this rube actually wised up and realized he was cheated and started to put up a stink and demanded his money back and asked for a police officer, well then Chris Norbeck, this big ofi Norwegian, would show up. Unfortunately for, for the gang, usually half drunk. <laughs> and sometimes he wouldn't show up at all because he was too drunk. But this was his job, would, would be to suddenly appear and say, hey, I'm a police officer. Uh, how can I help you? And then this rube would would point at these characters around the table and said, they stole my money. And the Norbeck's next line would typically be something like, well, okay, we can arrest them for for gambling. Gambling is illegal in Minneapolis, but you're gambling as well. Do you have a license to gamble? And of course, this out-of-towner who had just showed up in Minneapolis didn't have a license to gamble in Minneapolis. So he would say, no, I don't have one. And the officer would say, well, follow me. And on the way out would, would tell him, you know, you're in just as big a trouble as the rest of them upstairs are. Uh, the only way for you to get out of this is to cut your losses. And I can take you to the train station right now and you get out of town as quickly as you can. And then we will not arrest you and we will not press charges. So nine times out of ten, this would work. Um, suddenly this this uh, sucker who had been demanding his money minutes or hours before was suddenly hightailing it out, out of town on the quickest train he could find. And of course, <laughs> none would be the wiser because he would be gone and then they would just carry on with the next victim. Um, so this was this was one of the more interesting cons that Doc Ames and his group of ne'er-do-wells were, were a part of. So you mentioned that nine times out of ten, the big mitt game would work. But there was this guy, Roman Meeks, who finally decided to stand up for himself. Um, and that, along with a grand jury that was investigating Doc, that was kind of like the beginning of the end of this elaborate get-the-coin scheme. Yes, yes. So Roman Meeks would end up putting up a giant stink, refusing to to leave town, 
and would go demands to speak to the chief of police, Fred Ames. Fred Ames was, was wishy-washy, didn't like confrontation, kept him waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally, Meeks got especially frustrated. So he went to a local Minneapolis newspaper and got, got a reporter involved. And of course, this reporter, sniffing a gigantic story, followed Meeks and the two of them went to visit Fred Ames. And Fred Ames hemmed and hawed and pretended he didn't know what was going on. And it was all so suspicious that this reporter wrote about Meeks' experience being conned by these Bunko artists and then his experience trying to get any action taken against these men. And it was from a newspaper article that things really, really exploded. And a grand jury would, would be called in the summer of 1902, headed up by a man by the name of Hovey C. Clark, who would pretty much take it upon himself, at least according to Lincoln Steffens in his Shame of Minneapolis article, to investigate Doc Ames and this administration. And he spent, according to Steffens, a lot of his own money hiring private detectives, he went to find Billy Edwards and cheerful Charlie Howard, who were part of this, this scheme with, with the Ames administration. They had been arrested on a, a different charge and they were in jail. He went down and got them to flip and turn state's evidence. And that was kind of the, the initial domino that, that made them all fall. And I've had people that have, have asked me if we have evidence that all of this, is, this actually happened, that Doc Ames was, was really connected to all of these things. Well, there, there is a very important piece of physical evidence that was produced. It was the ledger that was kept by cheerful Charlie Howard. He was the, the accountant that listed all of the transactions that happened in each, they were, the records were kept in a meticulous fashion by Howard. And they handed the ledger over to Hovey Clark and Hovey Clark for some reason don't know why, I guess it was just the time, lent this piece of evidence to Lincoln Steffens who Luckily for us, made a facsimile, made a copy of the entries that were most damning to Ames. And basically, you can see the transactions that, that happened and who got paid what. And Doc Ames' name is in there. Fred Ames, his name is in there. Chris Norbeck's name is in there. I mean, it's actual physical proof that, that they were getting paid by these Bunko artists. They were all in cahoots together. Can you talk about what the consequences were for this grand jury? Um, you know, did anyone get prosecuted for their involvement in this elaborate con? Yeah, well, I, I definitely lay out all the trials and what happens in each trial and how things kind of escalate from here. But basically, this grand jury starts investigating Erwin uh, Gardner first. I think they thought that Gardner, being a 24-year-old kid, might be especially susceptible to a little bit of pressure. So they wisely tried him first, and he was convicted for his participation in um, the shaking down of, of the brothels, accepting a bribe, basically. And after being found guilty, Erwin Gardner would avoid going to jail by becoming a witness against Fred Ames, Chris Norbeck, and eventually Doc Ames as well, uh, and some others involved too. And yeah, um, the jury started taking down these, these guys one by one, investigating them, recommending indictment. They would all be put on trial. Um, most of them would be found guilty. Uh, Fred Ames actually was tried twice. The first time he was found not guilty, and the second time he was found guilty on a different charge. Um, Norm King would be tried on something a little bit different. He stole a diamond. He would be taken down for that. Uh, Chris Norbeck, he made a really bad attempt to flee town and, and just got a few miles away before he was, he was captured and brought back. And he was found in a completely drunken stupor without most of his clothes. And, and he had attempted to disguise himself by shaving his mustache, but he was easy to spot because of that horrible rash on his face, which had gotten even worse since he'd become a fugitive 
because he had just been drinking away his his sorrows almost nonstop for a week before they actually caught him. But I detail that story a little bit more in the book. Somebody else that becomes a fugitive as well is Doc Ames. After he sees all of, all of his cohorts going down one by one, suddenly in the fall of 1902, this is just like a year and a half after he he's elected. So he's not even, he doesn't even serve out his, his, his whole term. He suddenly decides he's going to step down as mayor and take a job in another state. So he leaves before he's arrested and he goes down and starts working at a health resort. Uh, but he leaves that health resort fairly soon after he arrives there too, for reasons I won't go into here. And he becomes a fugitive also. When it's finally time to bring him back to face the music, uh, sheriff's deputies are sent to, to find him and they can't. So he's actually chased through the South until he winds his way back north into New Hampshire. And he's finally captured there and brought back to Minnesota, where he he's ultimately tried three times. The first time he's found guilty, but his sentence is overturned on um, appeal to the state Supreme Court. And then he's tried two more times as well. But, but by that point, there's a lot of sympathy for Doc um, because he's constantly telling the press about how sick he is. And he actually makes his illness, these chronic illnesses that are suddenly kind of heightened, that he, he complained about in years before, all the way back to when he was a man, a young man in, in the 7th Minnesota, he had said he had gotten chronic dysentery. And these would be details that would be would later come out in, in his trials because this was used as his defense. That part of the reason why he was involved in these things um, was because he was suffering from mental illness, genetic, that was passed down from his father's side. One of his brothers happened to be in, in a sanatorium, um, so that helped his defense, I guess, to some, to some extent. But also because he was so chronically ill that it affected his mind as well. He suffered from bouts of temporary insanity. So any involvement he had had in any of these schemes, any money that he had taken, basically was a result of temporary insanity caused by mental issues and the illnesses that he suffered from. Witnesses would be called to dispute the fact that he was temporarily insane, saying it was more likely if he had made irrational decisions, it was because he was a chronic alcoholic and he was drinking so heavily to medicate his pain that if he was making these irrational decisions, it, it might have been from, from the drinking instead. So what you're saying is he's claiming that he was insane for part of the time he was mayor, and that's why he was corrupt and lining his pockets. That's just a remarkable claim. But somehow he was charismatic enough to convince people that this is true. Yeah, at, at this time he was still beloved by many people in Minneapolis who refused to believe that he committed any of these crimes, or if, or if they did believe that he had committed these crimes, they didn't care. It was more important, I guess they had doubled down on Doc a long time ago and decided that irregardless of whether he was immoral and had committed crimes while in office, they would still support him because they had already supported him for so long. I mean, there was no real logic behind it. <laughs> they were just blindly loyal to this guy. Um, again, despite everything that he had done, he ultimately didn't go to jail. He would die like 10 years later, still practicing medicine. Um, but his brother went to jail. Uh, Norm King went to jail. They all went to Stillwater Prison. Coffee John Fichat, who owned the Oyster Grotto, actually died of pneumonia before he went to trial, which could have been really interesting because he had, just a couple of weeks before he died of pneumonia, he had gone to the grand jury and spilled his guts once, once Doc had left town, Fred Ames, Coffee John Fichette, all of these, these characters started infighting and trying to figure out who would take over during Doc's absence because Doc uh, had offered his resignation, but because um, this was like in August, 
but because there was an election coming up in November, a brand new election, the city council didn't want to spend the thousands of dollars it would take to hold a special election just a few weeks before the general election. So they never fired Doc as mayor of Minneapolis. He just served out his term. So then Lincoln Steffens publishes The Shame of Minneapolis. <laughs> so then Lincoln Steffens. Minneapolis is right. Minneapolis. <laughs> Minneapolis, it, yeah, that's well said. Sorry, my dentures aren't in correct. No. no. I'm just kidding. Um, so he publishes The Shame of Minneapolis. Yeah, I should have called that. That would have been a great title for the book, Minneapolis ish. <laughs> Because it was a pretty ishy time in Minneapolis. Hey, that's brilliant. Where were you when we were picking out titles? Um, and it was really embarrassing for the people of Minneapolis, right? And what what were some of the repercussions of this publication? Well, I mean, it was positive in the sense that we had a bunch of reform mayors follow. As is, is probably not a great surprise, um, a, a Democrat was was voted in as mayor after Doc, and he did some really good things. He tried to clean up the city. A Republican was elected after him, tried his best, you know, to, to fix some of these things. And for a while, the police force was cleaned up. Rules were put into place. There were some restrictions put on the power of the mayor, at least for a while. And Minneapolis really did embrace this this progressive movement and a lot of reforms were made. Unfortunately, it didn't last long because by you know the 1920s and 30s, the Jewish mob would take over the city of Minneapolis and a man by the name of Isidore Blumenfeld, also known as Kid Can, by the 1930s, 1940s. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't, while he wasn't the mayor of Minneapolis, it would become known again as a place where horrible things happened. He murdered multiple people. He murdered uh, journalists. And a different, kind of, a different kind of crime would become associated with the city of Minneapolis. And it, and it would almost make what had happened in 1901 seem kind of childish and trivial because at least, at least people weren't killed or murdered during Doc Ames's era even though it was a black stain, it was kind of forgotten when the real violence began in the 30s and 40s. Well, how appropriate that we were able to talk about the story as we sit here in Stillwater, not too far from where it all ended for so many of the people in the story doing hard labor. That's true. Yeah, just down the street where the old Stillwater prison and the, the warden's house is still there. Um, one interesting little note the most famous Denzians of, of Stillwater Prison were the Younger Brothers, who, along with Jesse and Frank James, had, had held up a bank in, in Northfield, Minnesota. The James boys escaped. The Younger Brothers were caught. One of the Youngers died in, in jail. The other two were released in July of 1901, six months after Doc had taken office. And Doc, always the, the showman and the showboater, always looking for for press and to make and to make a big splash, offered a position on the police force to Cole Younger. Doc thought he would make a marvelous detective. Once the newspapers came down on Doc for such a stupid offer, Doc kind of backtracked and pretended he didn't say it. But Cole Younger uh, was was asked about it, and he confirmed that it had happened and said, "Well, he appreciated the offer." He wanted to get as far away from Minnesota as possible as soon as his probation was over. <laughs> he had had enough of Minnesota for the rest of his life. Well, thanks, Allie. Appreciate you taking some time out of your, your day with your, your new baby and everything like that. We finally managed to coordinate this quiet time. Yeah, we timed it perfectly with his nap time. Yeah. It's so much fun to talk to you, Eric, about this. Uh, it's just... Um, it's remarkable being, like I said earlier, being from Minnesota and never having heard about this story that is just so crazy, like all these larger than life characters. Um, and I think you've done us all a service by, uh, you know, uncovering this and sharing it with all of us. Uh, and by the way, I, I paid her to say that. So. <laughs> <laughs> I expect some Christmas cookies out of this. <laughs> <laughs> uh oh. You want me to make Christmas cookies? Yeah. You're in trouble. 
Um, yeah, so if, for anybody interested in, in, in the book, again, it's published through the Minnesota Historical Society Press. It's available at all local bookstores, um, independent bookstores, Barnes & Noble. You can go to the History Center and buy it at their gift shop. Also, of course, through places like Amazon. And I do have a couple of uh, historical novels that I wrote. So if you, you like the historical aspect of the story, but you know you want something a little bit more action-packed and suspenseful. I've written these two mysteries, The Big Mitt and Ill Fame, and you can go to Amazon online or Barnes & Noble online and, and buy those books and read those. Anyway, uh, thanks again, Al, and I appreciate it. This has been another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, uh, Where Blood Runs Cold. Uh, I'll see you again soon. Goodbye. Bye, everybody. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.